This episode of General Snobbery blew the roof off like a Michael Bay action movie and led us to the limits of our conversational abilities. Join us. Brought to you by Indiana Jones. This is a podcast. Open the pod bay doors. Baka Sherpa Sherpa. Baka for me, this movie kind of boils down to a little theory I've been playing around with for a number of years about certain 90s movies, and <laughs> it's basically that um, somewhere in a writing room, someone came up with a line... And then they thought, <laughs> and they thought, man, that would make a great final line to a movie trailer. And then they began writing the movie from there. Yeah. And so this would be one because if you remember the movie trailer, I remember wanting to see this movie so bad when I was a kid because oh, yeah. the movie trailer was so awesome. Yeah. And, and it, it was rated R. It was rated R. Yeah. And Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, is just, you know, <laughs> going to town. Han Solo. <laughs> and he just, the last line of the trailer is just, get off my plane. <laughs> I wish I could do a good Harrison Ford impression, but he can he can summon some deep anger, I think. Yeah. Get off my plane! You know, he has this angry way of yelling. And then I think they were like, that'd make a great trailer. Yeah. Now let's write a movie. Right, right. And I don't have any other, uh, I have one other movie that, kind of supports this uh, thesis of mine. And so maybe, <laughs> listener, if you have any more, please feel free to um, somehow let us know. Yeah, uh, com. Feel P- free to comment on this episode or to contact us. <laughs> um, and so if you have any other thoughts on 90s movies that did this, please let me know. The other example is the movie Ransom, I believe, oh. 1996. Yeah, wow. Yeah, starring... Boy, a lot of yeah. similarly themed movies or something in 96 and 97. <laughs> yeah, there was something going on that we need to sort of uh, dis- uh, kind of dig into a little more. Yeah, we'll have to do follow-up and yeah. think about it philosophically. Yeah, <laughs> but Ransom ends with the line, Give me back my son! <laughs> <laughs> Ransom starring Mel Gibson, his son is kidnapped, and yeah. it's... Uh, his son, Sean. Oh, his son Sean is kidnapped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mel Gibson, he'll he'll come up at some point. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's a legitimate connection. I'm sure that that was one of the the early lines. Yeah. So then there's also this theme that develops about like really family oriented fathers who are doing everything they can to like save their family because there's a really funny YouTube video that compiles basically. Every moment in Air Force One where Harrison Ford says, my family. Yeah. My family. My family. (laughs) It's always really frantic as he's being like pulled away. It's like, what about my family? Where's my family? (laughs) It is. It is hilarious. Several minutes. And it's really funny brought together. And then it also splices in some scenes from Witness when. (laughs) And I think uh, The Fugitive. fugitive. Yeah, not Witness. The Fugitive. But there's a third movie for sure. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's some. My wife. (laughs) Where's my wife? I did not find my wife. We'll put that link uh, yeah, on the website. Absolutely, you should watch it. Absolutely. So, well, it almost makes me wonder if there was this sense in sort of the mid late nineties of maybe a fear that the American dream was about to end because we have these sort of picture perfect families that are somehow torn apart by some massive um, kind of catastrophic event. And that's fascinating, you know, and and then the father, the the family unit as like the central tenet of the American dream. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of whether you're a president or Mel Gibson. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to be one of those. (laughs) No, but yeah, that central kind of, yeah, tenet of the American dream, the 
kind of the cohesive family all of a sudden at risk and you have to somehow it's there is a certain sense of what's going to happen like yeah. you know air force one things are going to kind of be okay but you don't know everything's going to be okay with the family there is a scene where you think maybe He's gary oldman yeah and it's it's pretty intense yeah and then she's a great actress yeah I, I don't know her name but she's also in that alfonso Suarón movie a little princess which oh, is okay I don't, i'm not even going to say it's a guilty pleasure of mine i just love it it's great <laughs> and she's a really great actress and she's only been in like one movie since air force one okay um there's some weird facts about her on the IMDb trivia that puts her as like one of the richest young people in the world and like some <laughs> lawsuit she was involved in where she huh. was going to get millions and millions of dollars. But that's all aside. But I, I want to touch on that point, Matt, because I think that's really fascinating, especially because I immediately thought um, if for some reason in like the mid to late 90s, the kind of cultural consciousness was that like the the myth of the American dream or I don't know the reality of the American dream. I'm not really sure what it is. It was an evolving idea. If there was the thought that it was at risk, well, that's reflected in some of the best movies that came out in the late 90s, I think both in 1999, and I immediately think of American Beauty yeah, and Fight Club. Yeah, right. And both of those movies are just about like... <laughs> Utter collapse of the American dream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In very different ways in mm-hmm. American Beauty, you know, we have literally the poster board image of the American dream, like very self-conscious about it. It's kind of a dark comedy in a lot of ways. There's you mm-hmm. know the white picket fence, this woman with really nice hair out, like trimming the roses. Everything's an aesthetic. They have nice jobs. They have this daughter. And yet immediately in that movie, we sense that, oh boy, this family is not doing well. And they're like sitting around the table with all these roses and, just chaos devolves in Kevin Spacey in one of the best performances ever as uh, Lester Burnham and also Annette Bening as his wife. An incredible performance. Yeah, really, that whole it's movie amazing. is just yeah. top five movies of all time. Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper. always amazing. Oh my gosh. His own version of like the dead American dream. Oh my These gosh, people living yeah. in denial. Yeah. And they're denying the fact that what they held true and mm-hmm. what they kind of lived their life toward is empty and yeah. meaningless wow. and it just devolves into chaos yeah and fight club like kind of starts with that premise that basically edward norton has you know he's never given a name he's just the narrator and he's lived his life um kind of moving toward everything he thought he should or everything exactly. he was told he should a good job a, a well-paying job benefits nice apartment condo all these material things yeah this huge huge critique of like the isolation and alienation that comes through kind of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, so much so that... Very Marxist. Yeah, absolutely. And so much so this kind of isolation that his mind... Uh, I'll just mention that oh, there is this probably oh. spoiler right here. In case you haven't seen Fight Club, you might want to right. skip ahead 30 <laughs> yeah. seconds. Um, it's so funny. I, I, I view uh, spoilers in such like a sacred way that I almost, <laughs> I almost now don't even want to say it. <laughs> Well, we've indicated that it's coming, so it's someone's choice to, or one listener's choice to continue listening. (laughs) You're right. Um, Anyway, I'll I'll just say it, but that he, essentially his mind creates a split personality, a second personality in the character of Tyler Durden, who is played by Brad Pitt. 
who essentially is everything that Edward Norton subconsciously wishes he could be and yes. wishes he could do. Right. And which is essentially destroy the life that he has <laughs> created for himself. <laughs> to be to this weird, distorted sense of freedom that is basically antithetical to the American dream. Like, the American dream promises freedom, that when you follow this kind of material life and follow these set pathways of the American life, then you'll experience freedom, you'll experience opportunity, and this flips it on its head where this guy, Edward Norton, and his alter ego, Tyler Durden, only experienced freedom through, like, self-sabotage, pain, self-destruction, and ultimately cultural destruction, (laughs) where they're about, they're intending to literally blow up these buildings that basically our entire economic system yeah, rely yeah. upon they become all these, around the country yeah <laughs> and man that's a disturbing movie i um had my i showed that to my parents a couple of years ago because it's such an enduring film i think it was mm-hmm. a real cultural milestone and yeah it, it's really it resonates so much with i'd say mostly people under the age of say like 35 or so and you know i'm sure tons of older people too but like my parents were really disturbed <laughs> like my mom i don't think she could finish it because it's extremely violent and very, very in your face. Um, it is. Even Roger Ebert, who we at General Snobbery absolutely adore. Yeah. We would probably consider him the ultimate film critic of absolutely. all time. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. I actually mean that. I really yeah. miss Roger Ebert. So do, so do I. <laughs> I, so, still, I know. I still <laughs> go to that website, RogerEbert.com, every single day and try to imagine that all of these different reviewers are Roger. <laughs> no, yeah. It's like there's a certain sense of like emptiness in my life when I'm like, it's almost like the wise, uh, the wise sage is gone. And like, to yeah. whom now can I turn? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he had, oh man, he always had such wisdom. And even when I disagreed, like Fight Club, he gave Fight Club a really bad review. I think he might have given it one star, star out of four. And his big critique was that it has no, it doesn't affirm anything. It's completely nihilistic and it's, too violent and he finds it incredibly disturbing and you know Roger Ebert was really an incredibly moral person and had real strong beliefs of kind of the line that of what a film should do and can do and he was very open-minded about what that line was but every once in a while he thought that crossed the line and it seems like his in his mind the biggest evil in the world was nihilism like lack of meaning because are you going to say that was his critique about South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut? And Team America. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. He felt it just sort of um, ripped down a certain system without offering any kind of hopeful, I guess, uh, alternative. Yeah, which is, I think, a, a noble stance to have. Absolutely. And, um, my favorite fiction writer, David Foster Wallace, kind of had that same idea toward fiction. He thought all these postmodern novels of the 70s and 80s basically were tearing down the structures of consciousness and how we perceive the world and a lot of times the American dream uh, but they weren't offering anything new they were basically saying we're screwed yeah. and he was like okay like yeah now what yeah mm-hmm. we can have this like big you know 900 page ironic text but why would you leave the reader or in the case of film the audience with nothing worth affirming like we need to rectify this this old morality mm-hmm. that we can find in like the old texts of the masters like Dostoevsky and Joyce and rectify that with advancements. Anyways, that's a tangent. Interestingly enough, like I might feel that toward books, but South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut and <laughs> Team America are two of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, yeah same here. <laughs> so I guess I, I relate yeah. to film differently. 
Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question because I totally understand Roger Ebert's critique of those movies, and uh, in so many ways, I completely agree. But but also, I I also love those movies. Maybe because <laughs> I feel like sometimes there is a need to just be totally out there in the sense of like ripping down something. Yeah, um, and things that people take way too seriously. Yeah, way too seriously, and it's like okay, so no, an alternative is not um, is not totally given. Except I'll say in the in the course of in the movie Team America, the alternative is sort of this middle way, this kind of golden mean. Um, if you're if you're a hardcore Aristotelian, nice, nice. <laughs> um, but of like, don't be like this, don't be like this. What what is sort of being in the middle and kind of not <laughs> taking yourself so seriously sound yeah. like? And yeah, I think that's part of why I love Trey Parker and Matt Stone because. Like in, in South Park, even when they have like Kyle or someone spout off like a lesson or a moral at the end of the story, they're being really ironic about it. Like I do get the sense that they do believe in some of the morals they'll spout at the end, like um, in this episode where they make fun of global warming and, you know, immediately when people think global warming is coming, which it's not in the episode, <laughs> they're, they're <laughs> attributing right. that as the cause and they're immediately finding like pointing to people to blame. And I think the moral of the episode is like maybe... In these situations, we shouldn't just be looking for people to blame because there's these people who are like stranded on their rooftops because of these floods and no one's helping them. So I think maybe you just have to read into it a little bit. And they're saying like, uh, this is absurd. We're dumbing it down in a satirical way, but this is happening. Yeah. Like we're not doing it was kind of a response to Katrina, I think, this particular episode, which is called Two Days Before the Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so they're kind of saying, like, find something worth redeeming. Like, I rarely disagree with the things they tear down because they're so great at tearing down, like, basically our idolization of celebrity mm -hmm. and our kind of closed-mindedness toward anything outside our, our bubble. And <laughs> really, I think a lot of times the way that the media controls our consciousness and the way the media um, and advertising, especially in their most recent season, they had this really recurring story that ended up kind of looking at the weird forms that advertising has taken in this, you know, 2016 society where no one's watching TV anymore. So they basically are saying these advertisements have to disguise themselves <laughs> yeah. as news and make people think that they're advertisements. <laughs> yeah. And yet they're still bombarding us on social media sites and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. And so what they are able to do, I think they're able to do it really powerfully is through humor, which is an incredibly powerful thing. Like maybe our podcast evidence is that like <laughs> Matt and I are able to have these lengthy and fun, at least for us, conversations <laughs> yeah. because we don't know how they are for so you, much. one viewer. <laughs> <laughs> we can't take it too seriously. Uh, yeah. It's, it's all ironic. Um, but it leads to some kind of uh, broader understanding or broader topic about kind of a uh, the kind of a a universal or something as a whole yeah yeah something underlying it um and i think what i was initially saying was that i love that trey parker and matt stone don't like dismantle it and then be like really seriously and melodramatically like see in the end it's just loving one another like they would make fun of that. Yeah, they would. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why for Team America, they wanted to just recreate with puppets scene for scene the movie <laughs> The Day After Tomorrow <laughs> because that movie has such a triumphant just love each other ending, yeah. even though that's not the... It epitomizes <laughs> yeah. like the stupidity exactly. of what's being like shoved yeah. down our throats exactly. in this like Hollywoodized, <laughs> like, 
consumer kind of way because you know we were just talking about capitalism a good bit with American Beauty and Fight Club but like I don't know if there's few things that uh, I guess represent capitalism as much as Hollywood like <laughs> you're right it's kind uh, of the epitome yeah it is a an international money making machine it is like we uh we have discovered that despite our beginning the beginning of our Independence Day resurgence episode where we insisted that it was performing terribly at the box office that it actually has done incredibly well internationally <laughs> and is making a lot of money so it's a success and that's how Hollywood in the capitalist logic would deem a successful film it's not whether or not it like touches the lives of people it's whether or not it brings in huge amounts of revenue for these massive massive companies <laughs> and all the people involved and then we'll make a sequel <laughs> <laughs> and there it is and it's it's all done and it's all good yeah so i guess to tie it back to air force one um you know we can really enjoy this movie for the sake of entertainment and for the sake of fun for the sake of laughter it's and enduring uh value and kind of yeah, the fact that you can still watch it and, and enjoy it. Yeah, for the idea of like a prototypical Hollywood film, it it's fun. It and is. And it makes money. Like, I'm I'm not anti-Hollywood or anything. Like, if these movies are fun and they make a lot of money, cool, that's great. I'm anti, like, really stupid <laughs> Hollywood that I think is becoming more and more prevalent now. Yeah. Like, you know, I'd enjoy Air Force One, but... And I was able to enjoy Independence Day resurgence, but like it's it's not going to be an, as enduring for me as no. Air Force One. Um, these bloated money making machines being just thrust out. And I've checked out a couple other film podcasts since, and we're not the only ones who are talking about like how all these bad sequels are coming out. There's a do a little plug here. There's another good uh, movie podcast that I found called Mad About Movies. Been around since 2013, and uh, they did an episode on Independence Day Resurgence, and basically we're just lamenting all these bad sequels <laughs> that are coming out. And, you know, we have a sequel episode that's already posted, so we don't need to go into that again. Um, but basically, I guess I've talked myself <laughs> into a limit. It's like... Well, capitalism, I, yeah. corporations, the corporations. <laughs> Die, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Team America reference. Team Hopefully America. you caught it. One of the best uh, scenes in that movie, in my opinion. <laughs> Alec Baldwin, you can't out. You can't out act me, kid. Don't even try. <laughs> so hilarious. But there is this sense I find, especially with what interests me about some of these. 90s blockbusters, which is sort of how we got on this topic. Yeah. And even movies of the late 90s, let's go for the blockbusters first. You know how they're going to end. Good is going to overcome evil. Nowadays, I find a lot of these movies, you know how it's going to end. <laughs> Good overcomes evil. But they try and insert it in such a way where you are supposed to think temporarily that good is not going to overcome evil. Yeah, there's a threat to There good. is a threat, yeah. so a palpable threat. Exactly. There's a darkness or something like that. Um, you know, I have not seen Captain America Civil War, but the whole idea that there's discord among the good guys, I think, oh, is yeah. supposed to represent kind of a broader sense in American or international culture. Interesting, especially with, like, you know, just a couple weeks ago when the UK has declared themselves independent of the, of the European Europe Union. Yeah, exactly. And so, They're like, part of the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and you could go into this a lot, but I've read a number of things that point to 
9-11 as a cultural shift oh, in yeah. consciousness, of course, which is very much true. But there's this sense that, okay, that that just expected triumphant finish that we watched in Independence Day and Air Force One and The Rock and Armageddon that it can no longer be expected because there's this yeah there's evil there is evil presence in the world yeah. and it has like it has basically it like kind of became a movie like yeah. the way they were just showing those scenes over and over again on every news station on September 11th and like years afterwards yeah. they still replay them every year it's horrifying it is absolutely horrifying to conceive of that as reality because we see Independence Day in 1997 and like this alien mothership yeah. explodes the White House and, and it's like, like whatever it's like oh man yeah. that's crazy wow it blew up and like now when we watch it like yeah. I actually found myself having this visceral reaction to that scene which you know couldn't have been anticipated unless it was all a conspiracy I'm Roland Emmerich. not ready to uh, to suggest that thus far but basically uh, these scenes are playing on TV and it's it's like this weird dissonance between our perception of reality and our perception of film and all of a sudden they're kind of brought together mm -hmm. and it's horrifying because what we thought was just like images of entertainment which is you know like explosions and chaos and death like innocent images that we could imagine are suddenly reality yeah and, and like the people running around are no longer just extra extras you know, who have no threat to their life. There are people yeah. being buried alive, mm -hmm. being, you know, like jumping out the windows of the World Trade Center as it's like in flames. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't need to get too sad here because that's, yeah. this direction is only sadness and horror. But I think it's a really interesting point. Yeah. That, like the, the sh a big shift in action movies and cultural consciousness came after that like we call this the post 9-11 era yeah exactly even people who weren't alive for it yeah and you know i think it's it's interesting because the 90s was so um kind of such a good time i mean when, when i think of yeah. the 90s i think of kind of the economy doing well i think of people being happy new yeah. cultural things there was kind of a sense of freedom i mean people were wearing cargo shorts and anytime yeah. adidas sambas <laughs> yeah. and playing with tamagotchis yeah like it was sort of like a neon yeah game boys it was fun things like my friend got a computer like <laughs> i have aol instant messenger like i mean things <laughs> were going really well modem, like, yeah wow, i can actually like yeah. instant message people and i get 10 minutes on the internet tonight <laughs> it was it was pretty fascinating it was exciting and um all these fun movies like man i don't think i've ever enjoyed movies as much as I did in the 90s and a lot of that yeah. has to do with innocence you know I yeah. was born in 1988 so you know I'm not even 10 for a lot of these movies or a little over 10 but you know these movies that came out in the late 90s it was so fun to go to the theaters and get popcorn and <laughs> wasn't any fear associated and no but then we mentioned a couple of these movies like Fight Club and American Beauty that maybe almost sort of anticipated this idea of a shift. just a shift where yeah. I wonder if people who were really attuned to it in the 90s felt that culture was in a sort of bubble and things there were was just... was a threat to yeah, what we hold as valuable. Exactly, because no, no one was anticipating something so catastrophic as 9-11, but maybe there was a sort of a deeper current where there was this sense of, okay, the, the unit that we understand now, or as we mentioned earlier, sort of this sense of the American dream could very well just kind of crumble as we go into this new millennium. 
Yeah, and I, I wonder where that came from because you know earlier we were talking about Desert Storm, and um, it basically seems that that really ended in the you know ninety one. So mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein stayed in power, and he was still like public en- enemy numero uno. But then I guess the rise of the Taliban. But I mean, I was really young on September eleventh. You know, I'm thirteen. I truly did not understand what was happening, but I was still terrified and freaked out. But I had never heard of the Taliban or Afghanistan before that. Like yeah. it wasn't really part of our cultural consciousness. And all of a sudden it is a hundred percent our cultural consciousness. It's what everyone's aware of and what everyone's thinking of. And that's the threat. Like that's the, it's not just this scary Saddam Hussein guy who is not a good guy or, you know, <laughs> Fidel Castro who is still like, um, Oh, he kind of bothers us. The yeah. communists. Yeah. Exactly. It, it goes from the communists being the bad guys to, the Taliban and terrorists, and there's a war on terror yeah. and stuff all of a sudden that happens. And fear. I remember in uh, Michael Moore's documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11, I think it's in his documentary, he has this really interesting point where he splices together all these like one-second clips of different news stations where they're just saying the word fear. And it's just like fear, 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 fear. Like all these different sources talking about fear and terror and all of a sudden, everyone's terrified. No one feels safe. And in some ways, the dream is dead. Yeah, because that dream was built on this idea of what you see at the beginning of um, American Beauty, where it's there's nothing to fear because... We're safe. We're safe. Yeah, we're safe in our little white picket fence yeah. houses. And we have these huge skyscrapers in mm-hmm. New York that you know make us feel kind of this sense of awe for what our country has created. Um, and the the fear the fear is always resembled by a single entity, whether it's a giant meteor crashing toward Earth, yeah, or an alien force, an alien force, yeah. But when the Gary fear, Oldman, <laughs> Gary Oldman, <laughs> yeah. but when the fear becomes something like a more nameless, vague thing, such as terror, yeah, um, which is simply another word for extreme fear, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. you know, it's where where is the bad guy and do you have to sort of look into yourself and you know it's just interesting this idea of maybe the american dream bubble crashing i'm reminded of another movie which this has a little bit of a spoiler uh, the truman show is quite literally this idea of the american dream within a bubble being a construction <laughs> exactly a facade yeah a facade yeah, exactly that there are literally physical limits to it. I mean, probably not literally. I think it becomes mm-hmm. allegorical at that point. But yeah. there are limits and, you know, the hero Truman has to go beyond those limits. And, you know, the movie doesn't suggest what those are. Mm-hmm. But it's seeing outside of this bubble. So, yeah, wow, that's another great mention of mm-hmm. films that seem to anticipate this shift, this movement to terror. There's a question that's risen in my mind a couple times throughout this conversation. Um, we've, we've talked about cultural consciousness, which, you know, it's, it's the dialogue of the culture. It's the thoughts of the culture. culture um, to uh, name drop a philosopher and therefore, you know, immediately to become more snobbish, yeah. uh, Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher who is deceased and therefore legitimate, um, <laughs> talked a, a good deal about... Um, I, I don't know his words, so if a philosopher is listening to this, they will kill, literally kill me. But it's something to do with like cultural consciousness and like art and writing. These things are reflective of a cultural consciousness. And really, that's what we do in this podcast so far. We were talking about Air Force One a lot in the context of 
the late 90s. What's this movie trying to say? And so the cultural consciousness now is in a really confused and honestly terrified place because we're in the midst of, I mean, we're about to really get underway with the new election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And um, Donald Trump, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too political here because um, honestly, like the whole thing kind of freaks me out. <laughs> yeah. But Donald Trump is so like 90s action movie he is. with his like way of presenting things, you know, like we're going to win. We're going to make America great again. Let's get it back to the dream. You know, basically saying everything in the 2000s and everything that Barack Obama has done has gotten us away from our core, which is, you know, really he's shown to be very powerful rhetoric because he's, yeah. man, he's riled up people and he has become the Republican presidential nominee. And an interesting thing about Donald Trump, which I found during the research of Air Force One, is apparently he said that he loved the movie Air Force One and really? he loved Harrison Ford as the president because he's so American. Wow. And so I, I, this was in the trivia of Air Force One on IMDb, and there's videos on YouTube of a reporter mentioning this to Harrison Ford when he was doing an interview for Star Wars The Force Awakens. And gosh, I love Harrison Ford because <laughs> he just basically, he he kind of chuckles and turns his head and I think the reporter's like, what do you think of Donald Trump? And he kind of turns the camera and goes, Donald, this is a movie. This is not reality. Like, you need to know the difference. And that's so amazing to see him say that because yeah. Air Force One is a Hollywood movie. It is not reflective of reality as our discussion indicated where this random Secret Service guy apparently like makes everything happen this guy gibbs gets everyone on board it's very far-fetched but it's fun and we could distinguish between movies and reality but which i don't think we really can now i mean like to kind of go to your question of sort of what's happening now and that's sort of hyperbolic in a way but since 9-11 made sort of the action scene so real in the sense of in the yeah. movie Armageddon, um, a little meteor goes through part of one of the World Trade Center buildings. Really? Yeah. And oh, it, wow. And it does not fall over, but um, we know it's what happened. not that uh, far removed from something that happened in reality. In reality, and even just a couple years later. And not to sort of go all um, anti-technology, but pretty much everyone is always looking at a screen these days. And so yeah. everything kind of feels like a movie, which you know is fiction. And so it's almost like now what would have once been considered so extreme or crazy, any number of things happening around the world or even just on the news, it's now sort of like, oh, that's like, look at this movie we're watching. Right. One of the big complaints about, I think, contemporary cultural consciousness, and often movies aren't even mentioned in connection with this, is that people are kind of distant from reality, that they, you know, in a sense, live in a screen and South Park did an inter... I mean, they're always kind of playing with this these days because it's the cultural consciousness, but they did this interesting episode where I think all the guys in uh, in like the second grade class or whatever grade they're in, all the, the main boys, um, they get really obsessed with all these different girls' like kind of Instagram profiles. Okay, yeah. And they start like dating these girls and judging these girls' appearances based on their Instagram photos 
And, you know, they obviously take it to the extreme to where, like, these guys are walking around holding the hands of the girls while staring at their pictures. But we all know that on Instagram, I mean, there's so many filters that just completely change the way that a picture looks. And, you know, I was talking to one of my students a couple months ago, and he was talking about his younger sister and how all of her friends, you know, they're obsessed with Instagram and they create these pictures through these filters where they look like they're, you know, like, 20 or something and they're like 12 (laughs) and they really like change the way they appear to get likes to become popular and you know that's kind of the the rubric for popularity i think in a lot of youth culture these days is kind of social media presence and so in this episode like these guys literally aren't looking at the girls in front of them and like there's a really unattractive girl and she's able to like create herself into like being really attractive on Instagram and she becomes immediately popular. So there's so much going on right now that has this really disorienting effect that does not necessarily connect us to reality. And now obviously screens are one of the most fundamental aspects of our reality. So like looking at a screen isn't like, you know, not experiencing reality. It's the real world. It's the world we live in, but like it's not the full extent of the real world. Like, and it becomes the full st- extent of people's realities. And, you know, you get these two or three second sound bits of Hillary Clinton, like, I'm just chilling in Cedar Rapids, <laughs> like, That's right. doing the dab or something. And, like, Donald Trump yelling something controversial and everything's so fractured. And I, I guess we can trace this distance from reality back to, like, you know, as you were suggesting, Matt, like the 2011, like, when all of a sudden image is not different between movie and reality. It's yeah. I think uh, in an earlier podcast, we talked about movies that have done well. My mind is kind of blown right now. (laughs) And uh, yours is to one listener, (laughs) but we kind of distilled our thoughts down to this idea that movies that do something really well are movies that somewhere fundamentally ask the question of what is reality? Yeah. Yeah. What is being, what is being yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And the matrix is one we mentioned, um, Truman which show, the Truman show Fight as well. Club. Exactly. Who space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what modern movies or contemporary movies, I think in some way want to touch on what the cultural, um, sort of undercurrents are sort of this cultural consciousness that, is often sort of a subconsciousness and they want to touch on it, but at the same time they want to fit the formula, two formulas, one feel good, three formulas, I guess one feel good two don't question anything. Three make money. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so when those actually are the undercurrents movies, like I haven't seen all the Marvel movies, but I assume they all do this. Um, sort of, they make you think for a second, you're going to go to this place of kind of self questioning or self doubt where ultimately you can find some kind of attempt at an answer. And really, they just sort of fit the formula. And um, maybe it is this fact that screens are so much a part of our reality that if we still associate screens with like the occasional crazy thing, but now they're so much a part of our reality that we're seeing tons of crazy things to the point where they no longer seem crazy, essentially becoming desensitized. It's sort of like, okay, there we don't, nothing amazes us then. And there's no reason for us to ask these deep questions because we just saw that this happened or this guy's saying this thing. And we should, I think, think that all that stuff is kind of insane, but we kind of don't right now. Yeah. And 
you know, I'm, I'm glad we've gone to this place because all of a sudden I have a newfound appreciation for Jurassic World, which we had a great time making fun of and we or laughing about. We basically said it seemed all too obvious that it was like, you know, deconstructing this Hollywood system. But I guess if we take it beyond Hollywood, like that's it's saying just what you said, like it has a lot to do with nothing amazes us and it's in the form of dinosaurs and like these kids and these characters are literally like taking pictures of this spectacle before them with their phones and staring at their phones yeah. as like the t-rex murders a goat or something <laughs> and so it does become an allegory then for for bigger things beyond just like amusement and hollywood mm-hmm. just like reality and you know a striking reality one thing i'm thinking of uh a really fascinating thing that happened um, and I want to say 2011 maybe it was 2013 2013 yeah I think that's more likely was when Edward Snowden uh, came out with basically all these top secret documents of the National Security Security Agency in the US government and fled to Russia first gone to Brazil and eventually ended up in Russia Mm -hmm. Um, but he's still in Russia and Basically, it was this massive, massive story where he released all these really top secret documents. He became like, you know, a fugitive and enemy. Basically, like there's this Onion article that basically was saying like Edward Snowden is protagonist of Michael Bay film. Like, <laughs> Edward Snowden lives most interesting life of all time where he's basically like a fugitive of the American government, super well-spoken. And he releases these documents that like, Basically, the gist was that the American government has overstepped its boundaries with the Patriot Act, which came out in the wake of 9/11. September 11th mm-hmm. um, and was passed because everyone was terrified of terror, which, you know, if we think back to <laughs> that famous quote, the only thing to fear is fear, fear itself. itself. Is that FDR? Yeah. Um, well, we have basically entered a climate where <laughs> fear itself is the biggest fear. Absolutely. So I guess we're not listening to that anymore. <laughs> Um, basically the Patriot Act comes around and it's allowed according to these documents that, um, you know, I can't give Edward Snowden a hundred percent of the credit. He needed journalists to get this information out there, really bold journalists. And those are, uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras. Uh, Glenn Greenwald was a reporter for the, uh, Guardian for the Guardian. Yeah. And that was one of the main dumps and Laura Poitras was, a reporter for the Washington Post, and then she ended up making a documentary um, behind the scenes when they all first met Snowden, you know, and were trying to release everything called Citizen Four. Actually, won the Oscar for best documentary, which was cool. But basically, the documents revealed that the NSA and the American government are able to listen to everything through smartphones. They're able to access all of our communications through. Um, text messaging, through email, um, basically all the thoughts that we have of privacy are gone. And, you know, everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's like 1984, it's Orwellian. And Edward <laughs> Snowden's like, yeah, it's Orwellian, but it's way beyond whatever that dude could even possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's super complicated. And admittedly, when that came out, I started hearing about it from people. I was like, oh man, weird, cool. Okay, well, yeah, I, I you know, assumed and, yes, that, yeah, exactly. that that's what was happening. Yeah. I'm fine. And then like, all of a sudden, John Oliver did a, a an Edward Snowden episode, and he actually went to Russia to interview him and did this great, great interview and basically made it more simple what came out. And I went really deep into it, and like, it's really scary. 
Like, it was really, really freaky what he's pointed out. And basically, terror has become an excuse for what a lot of people would consider a massive overreach of the governmental arm. And, you know, they say, oh, yeah, but we're doing this so that we can find terrorists and stuff. But he's basically, Snowden basically pointed out that, like, there's, like, been one terrorist act that's been stopped. And, you know, if we look at these recent years, there's more terrorists stuff going on than ever before if we think of school shootings and like mm-hmm. you know there's a recent shooting in Orlando which was like the deadliest shooting in like American shooting history or something yeah. or at least the deadliest in a long time and then Sandy Hook and like all this really intense stuff the Boston bomber and it's not being stopped through this breach but basically like John Oliver was like saying to Edward Snowden this was like a year after everything like hey man um no one cares Like, what do you make of this, that you basically risked your life for this? You fled to Moscow. You'll immediately be arrested if you come back to the States. And no one cares. No one's doing anything. It was not a big political issue in this particular year. Like, most of the candidates that mentioned at some point, like, yeah, we need to stop government overreach. But even Barack Obama said that before and basically Snowden pointed out that he didn't. So that's that's an all-striking reality, I think, and of a reality that's completely intermingled with post 9-11 America and screens and smartphones. Like, mm-hmm. you know, TVs can record now. And this probably sounds like I'm a paranoid, delusional <laughs> man. But, like, this is actually true. But no one cares. And no one, like, seems amazed. It's just like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, no, that's, that's reality, <laughs> yeah. man. Like, this is yeah. reality. This is where we're living in the world. Exactly. And... To sort of go back to another philosopher that we've mentioned in a previous podcast, Martin Heidegger, I believe he wrote about the idea of how technology affects us as thinking individuals. Oh, yeah. And it's not just... Techne or something. Yeah, exactly. It's not so much that technology is a part of our culture, but that technology fundamentally shifts the way we perceive things. Oh, wow. And I think the example he gave was a river in Germany, which for years was this river and it was um, a form of transportation, a means of transportation. It was something that helped irrigate irrigate, uh, crops. And then at some point in the 20th century, early 20th century or something, they made it into a dam to create electricity or to power some factory. So the river no longer became a river and it became a means to create to run a factory. And so our perception of what the river was changed. And I think that's hmm. the example he gave. Okay. So it becomes kind of more pragmatic. Yeah, exactly. Practical, like use-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, he talked a lot about equipment yeah. and stuff. And I, I, I've only read like his piece on art, um, like on the origin of the work of art or something. And he talks a lot about that, how we you know, view physical things as like Equipment, but I guess art has to get outside that, and I'm not even going to try to go further because I'm just going <laughs> to really make mad some Heideggerian theoretical listener who right. is definitely not listening to this. Yeah. I will tell you the translation of Dasein. <laughs> <laughs> I am Dasein. Dasein is me. <laughs> I hope our one listener understood that was das- a joke. Dasein yeah. means being there in German. <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, that's that's fascinating and makes me think of another one of the main questions that's kind of come to my mind and that's like does a Hollywood film does it reflect consciousness or does it create consciousness like in these movements of you know consciousness and how we perceive the world is Hollywood responding to these movements and basically feeding 
these mentalities that we have or is it actually capable of like making the changes in consciousness happen like you know acting as propaganda and like rallying people up or um creating this ambiguous enemy like what how much can the media do that and i mean how much can they do that and still be like moral i guess yeah that's a great question in my mind immediately goes to the movie 300 which oh, I believe boy. came out in 2005. Does that sound right? Um, Maybe 2007? I think it was 07 because I was in college at the time. Okay. Um, yeah, Zack Snyder, yeah. director. And I heard a very interesting take on the movie 300. You know, it's a very well done movie in the sense of like technically well done and unique and would totally appeal to especially a younger male audience. But as the movie unfolds, we have the Persians as this as the bad guys, essentially, and the Greeks who uphold the standard of Western civilization yeah. as the good guys. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, yeah, and Persians as the bad guys is sort of ambiguous enough, but it becomes this fight, essentially, East versus West. And that came out like around the time. Middle East, right? Yeah, Middle East. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like super fascinating. <laughs> yeah, after it really is. 2011. And it's this idea that the Persians are going to destroy Greek culture. And even though um, I think if you understand a certain sense of history from that era, there was more cultural exchange, far more cultural exchange than that movie gets, gives credit for because the Greeks are just these six-pack or even eight-pack sort of <laughs> beautiful Greek Gerard Butler men and the Persians are these weird faceless... One, one of the Persians is like this big giant baby with saw arms. I mean, they're just these crazy monsters. Really creepy. Yeah, and there's this idea that those Persians are threatening our way of life so what do we have to do? We have to fight them. And that came out at a time when the Iraq war was clearly at one of its lowest points where yeah. people were like, wait a second, we've been in here like four years. What the hell's going on? Yeah, shoot. And um, all of a sudden 300 comes out. And I don't know if that was a direct um, instance of propaganda, but it certainly feels like pure propaganda. Yeah, totally. Especially, you know, George Bush was hated yeah. at that point yeah. pretty much. Like his approval ratings were at an all time low being down there. Mm hmm. So it really, it really is very, I, I'm saying the word triumphant a lot in these the recent podcasts, but um, it's, it's very, it. yeah, it is. And it's very triumphant. And it is after a sense of what will happen. Maybe we will lose. Maybe the Spartans are going to lose and all of them die, except for this one character who at the end is recounting the story and essentially leading the charge onward against the Persians. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of triumphant sense of like power and will and moral fortitude is really central to 90s blockbusters, 2000s blockbusters, and contemporary blockbusters. Um, it's kind of an unquestioned and unquestioning sense of right and wrong. And I mean, that's kind of how we're brought into this culture in a lot of ways. Like they're very set in stone cultural values uh, that I think go back really far actually probably a lot of them go back even to the puritans like at the foundation of this country so i guess the hollywood film they're not even really intending to bring up any questions or anything they're not intending to make us think about like these structures of reality that we take for granted so many of them are way more interested in just kind of imparting this feeling this triumphant feeling this sense of pride and 
you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I, I love this country. I think it's awesome that we are able to do this podcast and like talk about it and, um, put this out there, like, and not be too afraid of censorship. Like there's a part of me that like, when we get into like the big critiques of what's going on, um, there's a part of me that's like, oh my gosh, it's like, we're going to get in trouble. <laughs> but I'll just say to that, there's a movie about Edward Snowden coming out fairly soon. Yes. And I, I'm confident it's going to be terrible. Yeah. Directed by <laughs> Oliver Stone with Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing Edward, Edward Snowden. Snowden. Yeah. And Nicolas Cage as oh. someone. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot he's in that movie. Yeah. When I saw that in great. the trailer, I laughed. Yeah. I laughed aloud and I immediately regarded the movie as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I think about what movies have been kind of influential in recent years and I, I keep wondering like what what does spotlight mean spotlight is the most recent best picture winner and um, it's a powerful film it has some incredible performances like I loved it it really kind of moved me um, but is spotlight as lasting as something like Fight Club or American Beauty that's really challenging things that are taken for granted or is it more like a uh, kind of move of of healing that's appealing to a controversial topic that is far enough removed that we can finally see it. Like, hmm. I don't know if Spotlight is asking really fundamental questions of the human condition. I mean, yeah, it is. It, it has a really compassionate look at kind of the way lives are destroyed by evil, by the evil mm-hmm. of some of these people kind of that defies any logic. But I, I, I'm not sure if it's going to... It's like at a very micro level or something, you know, where we're looking at individuals and it clearly addresses the idea of, of kind of institutionalized evil, I suppose. But um, it's yeah, hidden. More, hidden, yeah. But we're looking hidden at the realities. lives of just like a couple people. Um, yeah. And some of that is these reporters who, who are the main characters. So it does have kind of like that overhanging reality of conspiracy. And I think part of why I liked it so much is once I got into the whole Edward Snowden story, it like really was amazing to see what these journalists had to go through in order to expose the truth, which they saw as their moral prerogative, even though the system of government that they were within was not supporting that moral prerogative. And, you know, that's one of the big themes of spotlight is like, they're getting a lot of warnings. Like, don't go there. Don't go into this. Um, There's not really, huge threats against them though in the movie like i kind of wanted there to be that dark figure in the distance <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's like you know really shady and threatening but they just kind of figure it out and bring it's, it out yeah. there so if anything like the whole ethos of conspiracy i think is pretty big these days because you know in the wake of the snowden revelations it's like who can we trust what mm-hmm. can we trust what is truth and what is truth i guess is still one of the Big questions. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm yeah. saying right now. <laughs> we better talk this one into oblivion. Yeah, my my uh, my mind is is essentially <laughs> liquid. Yeah, um, I guess we might as well reveal at this point that there's a, a part about probably two minutes ago, right after we were talking about 300, where Matt and I had to take a little break because um, we've been talking for so long. We made more coffee, and we're now attempting to get back in and as you can tell we might have just reached the point of no return with all of this it reminds me of like a glow stick if uh, you break it and it's it's light and it's very nice and you can refreeze them 
but then you try and re-break them again and have <laughs> the glow stick work again. It never really works. Yeah, yeah, you can't get back there. And I guess that's one of the most enjoyable parts of this kind of conversation. We were we were saying as we were making making some coffee that we're we're kind of reading films and it's kind of evolved. Like we originally started by just kind of making fun of films and we still enjoy doing that. And that's really one of the keys. Like if we hadn't started talking about Air Force One in depth, then we wouldn't have gone to what yeah. what we would consider interesting places and yeah. unforeseen places. Posing a deep question. Yeah, yeah. And um, getting at these questions and I guess the one of the enduring questions of this particular podcast that definitely doesn't have an answer, or a clear answer at least, is is Hollywood creating a cultural consciousness or is it feeding a cultural consciousness? What role is it playing in that cultural consciousness? You know, I think that we might have mentioned in a, a recent episode that one of the roles of art in general snobbery's belief is that it kind of brings people to confrontation with the borders of their reality and kind of the limits of what they take for granted, kind of the uh, the structural limits. And, you know, earlier when I was talking about Fight Club and how I showed it to my parents, like it was pretty clear it was bringing them to like this limit of kind of what they, I guess, think should be in a movie or maybe even what they want to think about. Because like there's a lot of things that people don't want to think about like it's easier to not think about it's easier to not think about harsh realities you know you get news of these bombings and stuff and terrorist attacks it's like oh man that's so sad and then like you know turn the page to the next news article about and it's something else you yeah forget about uh, it. michael jackson's death and new details or prince or um matthew mcconaughey or yeah, yeah they're all in like the same medium so I guess that's the question we leave you with, dear listener. Um, one of the many questions, what, uh, what effect does film have on our perception of reality? Think about that one. Well, I suppose that we must bring this to an end. It saddens me to say that, but that's okay, because as will be indicated in an episode that is soon to be posted... Matt's about to take a journey. Um, would you mind sharing? Yeah, I'm about, <laughs> I'm about to walk the Appalachian Trail. Literally um, leaving tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so this is uh, our last time recording together for some time. And so it seems appropriate that we ended on such a, prof- uh, what seems to us at least to be a profound <laughs> topic. Yeah, I think that all of these conversations are inevitably going to lead to questions because at some fundamental level of our consideration of reality, there's just questions, you know, Mm -hmm. the enduring question of why, what does it mean to be? And hopefully movies attempt to at least ask that. Yeah, exactly. So thank you, Harrison Ford, Air Force One, uh, Gary Oldman. William H. Macy. William H. Macy, Gibbs, (laughs) Wolfgang Peterson, Roland Emmerich, and all of these interesting people who have led us to these <laughs> questions us, yeah to these questions <laughs> through this dismantling of a, a weird movie that has apparently indicated more about American culture than maybe we ever thought about so dear listener we thank you thank you and, and we hope you join us Con- continue to join us on this snobbing journey farewell farewell farewell